At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to The Peripheral. First and foremost, I want to say that this episode is not trying to knock prescription medications. Some of us need balance that we cannot attain through other methods. I read a perfect meme about this. It says, if you can't make your own neural transmitters, store-bought is just fine. We all have our self-doubts, look to social media to see others, including our idols, living what we perceive to be perfect lives. We think that they have their life together. So we ask ourselves, why can't we get ours on track? Tonight, I have a very special guest, Mental illness does not discriminate whether you're famous or not. And we'll find out that even the captain of the ship has his problems. We're going to be talking about you today, Captain. (laughs) I'm Um, so excited. So essentially, when we talked last time, you told me this whole crazy story about you playing at bars, working a full-time job, it's stressing you out, and then getting on prescriptions that made everything worse. So that's the story that I want you to tell. So I actually worked three jobs for a while. I worked at a bank on Monday through Friday. I believe I'd normally start at nine, get done at three. Then I'd drive from downtown to the south side of town. Mm -hmm. And I'd teach from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. And I do that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday morning, like 10 to 2. And then I'd play gigs normally Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and sometimes Sunday. So I was working a lot. So what were you teaching? I was teaching guitar. Okay. So I taught about 40, 45 students a week. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day, like it, it was kind of roughly probably 30 hours a week at the bank, 20 some hours teaching and probably another 20 hours playing gigs, sometimes more. So you're looking at the average week I was doing you know, 70 to 80 hours a week. Wow. Yeah. And I was uh, engaged at the time and, and my fiance had two boys and she was going to school for nursing. So basically all the responsibilities were they weren't put on my shoulders. I, I kind of asked for it because when we first met, I like went back to school and was like talking to counselors about what major to have and all that stuff. And I, I remember coming back home and having all the programs and stuff out. And she was just reading through them like all giddy. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't that excited about going back to college. Yeah. So I was just thinking like, well, how about you go first and I'll work and then we'll figure it out from there. And at that time I was just teaching and, and doing a little bit of the banking thing on the side. But then it became, once she really got heavy into school, it was like whatever job I could get, I'd put on my plate. So I basically, if I wasn't working, I was sleeping. You're just trying to make ends meet because you have two kids and this family and you're trying to make sure she can go through college and 
everything's paid. So you're not fucking homeless, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and I dealt with, I think, small bits of depression here and there. And it's funny that we're talking about this because I've been thinking a lot about perception lately yeah. and how you perceive how you were maybe when you were in third grade or how you were when you're in high school. And I just always was happy. I was always, nothing really bothered me too much. I didn't stress out too much. Even if it was like, oh, I'm getting a bad grade in school. Okay, well, it'll work itself out. Mm -hmm. Or I'll put a little more work in and it'll work itself out. And when I was, I think, 1920, I was just having a really rough time adjusting to school and adjusting to, you know, becoming an adult and just felt kind of lost. And I ended up taking a lot of pills to commit suicide. And some of my friends had that same type of thing. And I mean, looking back on it now, it really doesn't seem like much and it's weird because after it happened probably till my late 20s it was almost like any person i met that i was going to become friends with or maybe start a romantic relationship with i always felt like this need that i had to tell them why it happened and and all that stuff if that makes any sense you're being open and honest and letting them know what they're getting involved with i guess right yeah. And, you know, back to the perception thing at the time, it was a big deal. And now, you know, I'm 37 years old and I can look back on it and say, well, I wasn't really trying to end my life. I was more or less trying to create some flare or some white flag that I could wave to say, look, I just had enough right now and I, I need somebody else's help. They usually refer to it as a cry for help. And I hate it because it makes it sound like a a fake call for attention when it's not. It's I'm having a problem and I don't know how to explain myself to others right now. So this I'm going to do it through action instead of words. Yeah. And I I was raised Catholic, which I mean, I don't know about other people's families, but it was just certain things would happen in our family and we'd just be told we're not going to talk about it. And, you know, my father was a detective and my mother was a principal they're dealing with kids all day. So I don't know. Uh, My dad was the head of the detective unit, but he did a lot of stuff with the juvenile unit in my town. So then I think anytime we got in trouble or anytime that we had issues, I think they were just kind of tired. And I still remember being after they give you like the charcoal and they pump your stomach and all that stuff. They wanted me to sign in to like the mental ward of that facility. And, And I did. And I just remember... I remember that there was a piano in the psych ward and thinking, well, if I'm here for like a lot of weeks, then maybe I could get better at piano or something like that. But then when they let me out driving home, I still remember my mom saying, I'm sorry this happened, but let's not tell anybody about this. And just thinking that that was strange. And my dad called me to see if I was okay. And that was it. That was the only times that I ever talked to my mom or my father about it. That actually sounds a lot like how my family would have responded and we're not Catholic. So I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's just a, a private sort of thing where this is our dirty laundry and nobody else needs to see it. I don't, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. And I, and I understand that maybe we don't need to share this with everybody, but we never, ever talked about it. It just was something that happened and they never asked me. I mean, I think my dad every now and then would ask me if I was okay. and. I remember at the time thinking, no, I am not okay. And it was either that night or the night 
after I was released, I had a bunch of buddies that live up on campus and uh, Ohio State campus. And I went up there and was hanging out. And I just remember multiple times being called stupid by my friends. I kept on thinking, I ended up leaving early because I remember thinking, this is not the way people should respond to this. And then I think it made it worse because I didn't have anybody to talk to. And so you just kind of let things fester. And it's like, well, you don't want to tell your buddy that you're having these weird thoughts or whatever because you know, he might call you stupid. <laughs> so Exactly. I mean, that's and that's always the thing is, is especially with men, we're it's always a show of weakness or whatever. If we have a problem, if we can't handle our shit, you know, other guys are like, what's your problem, man? Just pick it up and move on. Or at least we expect that reaction. So then we don't even talk about it because we just assume that we're not going to be taken seriously. And I think too, I think the thing that was frustrating me the most was, you know, in elementary school year, here we go from like K to fifth grade or whatever. You get to the fifth grade and then you're all excited to go to middle school. And then you spend a couple of years in middle school. Then you go to high school yeah, and then you graduate and then you're, you're supposed to want to go to college or, or not go to college. But it just seemed like other people were okay with their paths that they were taking. And I just kind of felt lost. I always tell people I can win any race. I can beat anybody in a race. As long as I know where I'm going and the other person doesn't know where we're going. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's what I felt like in life was all these people were running to these flagpoles because they knew what they wanted to be. And I was just, I didn't even know where to run. And that was very confusing. And then, then it started making me feel like, and I would talk with my therapist all the time, was most of my 20s was constantly sitting around pondering, how do I get back to the 16-year-old me? Yeah. Or the 17 year old me, the guy that had some things figured out, the guy that woke up with a purpose, a guy that was friendly, a guy that wasn't grumpy all the time. And I can only imagine what kids and adults even feel like today with going out on social media and seeing everybody living these perceived perfect lives where they all know where the finish line is. And well, yeah, they're living, <laughs> they're living their best life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I couldn't imagine. I think I hate to call it a failed suicide attempt, but I think if there was social media and stuff like that, I don't think I would have failed. You know, I had a small group of friends that I was hanging out with and I didn't have any friends in college. And that was the other part of the the depression was you go from high school being somewhat popular and having some friends or just being known. I don't know if I was popular, but people knew me. I was a guy that had a band in high school and and that was pretty cool. And I went to a high school where there was no commuters. You live there. That's it. And so to be driving to school every day, and it was like every day people were like, who are you? <laughs> yeah. you don't, what building do you live in? You're like, I, I live with my parents. And they're like, you drive to school? Literally, like my class schedule was like class, hour break, class, two hour break class it was like ridiculous but then you'd realize oh they set up the schedule like that for these kids because they could go back to the dorm mm -hmm. but when you don't have anywhere to go back to you sit in your car or you sit on the, the stoop of a building and just wait and that gets pretty lonely yeah exactly funny enough i was helping my niece schedule with her classes in college and she was making it so all of them were just back to back to back because she's like i don't want any downtime and kind of understand why you're left with your own thoughts and just nothing. 
funny that you're saying that you were popular in high school and then you go to nothing. Whereas I was never popular ever until now. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm having a hard time dealing with that popularity, but uh, yeah, it's sort of funny. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't popular. I just, it's all perception, but I just was a really good kid. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't get in trouble. I was nice to everybody. So my best friend growing up, interesting thing was he threatened to commit suicide in eighth grade in the lunch line and i i went and told the counselor about it because I, I took it serious when he said it and he ended up transferring and not going to high school with us because the amount of people picking on him was just too much for him but he was one of my best friends and then like the captain of the football team was also one of my best friends so it was just like to me if we had a class in third grade together or we played baseball together in fifth grade, well, we have a bond. We have a connection. So even though you've changed a little bit and now you're the gothic kid in high school, you're still my friend. I mean, I'm, look, I'm sure there's a lot of people that hated me, but I literally walked through the high school and gave people high fives yeah. all day. Like I just thought, you know, the kid that's maybe struggling with his weight a little bit, if I give him a high five, that maybe he will, that will make his day. Or a kid that got picked on a little bit, if I go up and give him a hug or give him a high five, then maybe that will make him feel a part of something. Mm -hmm. And and I think maybe in a way, like I gave so much of myself in high school that once it was done, maybe I was just done. So No, I get it. I definitely get it. And I tried to go to college for a while, but I couldn't afford it. I didn't have any grants and I refused to take out a loan. I didn't really have a much su a support model. And it doesn't sound like you had a lot of support either when you moved on. So No, and I think with my parents, they wanted me to go. But it was also at the time where students weren't taking out loans all the time. Mm -hmm. So my parents were basically like, you need to go to college. Like they're pushing that issue. But they're like, but, but we're not going to help you pay for it. No. Oh, and by the way, we don't want you to get student loans. And so you're like working and going to school and you're like, so this is not, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. It's hard. I know thousands of people do it every year, but it's not easy. And I, I don't recommend people take out 50 to a hundred thousand dollars worth of loans when they're 17, 18 years old either. I mean, would you have your 18 year old kid sign the mortgage of your house? No. Right. But we give them right. loans for school. Although I think schooling's good. I just think it's a racket. <laughs> I definitely think there's some, some kind of conspiracy going on there, but I do think it's good. I mean, yeah. I got through a few years of college and just with, even with the podcast, the amount of work and the emails and things like that. I mean, one of the things that college does help you with is setting goals of what you need to get done. I wish I would have gone a little further in college because I think I would have been better at it. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be 400 emails behind. Uh, You're only 400? Wow. <laughs> I mean, I work hard on it. <laughs> there's something wrong with me because I just, there's a, a famous writer that I became obsessed with, David Foster Wallace, which committed suicide. His story is really interesting because he was medicated for a long time, but the side effect of his medication was that it would upset his stomach and it got really bad one time. So then the doctor said, well, this medicine that you're on, it's, it's very old and nobody takes it anymore. Let's try to put you on something else. It got really bad. So they ended up calling his mother and he's married at the time, but calling his mother to come move in with him to kind of help out why they experiment with different medicines to try to figure out which one will work. And anybody that has taken antidepressants or antipsychotics or anything like that knows 
that one thing that might be the cure for your buddy could be the death of you. I think the new medication that he was on caused him to slip more into depression and he ended up hanging himself. But there's a really cool book about an interview that Rolling Stone did with him that was never released. And that book's called The End of Tour. And I was reading some interviews and hearing some stuff about him that anybody that wrote to him, he would write them back. And he just believed that he owed that to the people that were supporting his career as a writer. So I've always, where Nick probably has like a thousand emails to send back to people. I've just been so grateful that people will take the time out yeah, to make, you know, us a part of their lives where it's like, I try to just, even if it's just saying thanks for the kind words, mm-hmm. cheers. Yeah. It's something for the gen Y. I think we're pretty good about writing people back, but for the peripheral, I mean, I get some really heartfelt emails and I don't want to write them back <laughs> with just thanks for writing in when they've spilled their heart out. But at the same time, I think something is better than nothing. And when I'm behind, they're not getting any reply. And and I just feel terrible about it. So yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that is difficult because sometimes you get like pages. But what I've always found is even if I wrote like two or three sentences, and I meant what those two or three sentences, I I might get a reply back from that person saying, I can't even believe you replied. (laughs) You know, (laughs) yeah, that's so cool of you. And you're like, when sometimes your reply is so little, but it means so much, then you know that you should go ahead and send a small reply. Well, you're inspiring me to jump back in my emails and start replying now. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's cut the interview short and let's focus on our emails. So after college, that's when you uh, were engaged and working at this bank? Yeah. So it was like 25. I, I met this girl and she had a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And for whatever reason, I was like, hey, I I don't have my life together, but let me try to be a part of your life. Mm -hmm. And probably 28, I had a little bit of another breakdown. And but it was kind of a good breakdown. I was trying to figure out where am I heading. And I really started like looking up things that I was interested in and reading more, but really trying to make sense of everything that was happening in my brain. I was reading a lot of books on people with depression. And as we got through, as my fiance got through school and the lack of sleep, I think a lot of it was the lack of sleep. My depression kept getting worse and worse and worse where, you know, I was drinking heavily at gigs just to get through the night and sometimes driving drunk and sleeping in my car. And just, I mean, when you're working 70 to 80 hours a week, you start thinking like, what kind of life is this? And that was causing issues in the relationship. And I think anybody with depression, then once a relationship's ending, uh, for me, it was like any relationship that was going to end was catastrophic. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is not just the end of this relationship. This is the end of everything. Yeah. So at some point it was, let's not break up, but you really need to stop reading these well, actually, there's a movie, but but it was a book before called Silver Lining Playbook. And just some of his thoughts in that book. I mean, I started reading that book and then hours later I was finished because I just didn't put it down because it was just certain things that he was having and thoughts that he was having in that book. That And that book with my fiance really made me go, I need to go. Well, actually, I might have been married at this point, but either way, between all that, between this book and between her and between talking with my father and some other people, I basically just asked my father what he would do if he was me. And he said that he would go to 
uh, net care and just say, this is what's going on and I need help. And and I also had a breakdown at work. I was working at the bank and just out of nowhere, like it's just like this crying spell happened. And, you know, I'm 6'3". I'm not a small guy. And I was just working at the bank and just something, it was almost like something broke mm-hmm. and just tears are coming out. And then, of course, the people around me is like, what's going on? And I was like, hey, I just need a minute. And then my manager pulls me in and it's like, hey, uh, I'm going to send you home today. But we have a policy where we can't send you home crying. Like you can't leave by yourself. So my dad had to come pick me up. And, wow, you know, that that's pretty embarrassing when you have. Yeah. And my dad's not a naturally depressed person. So he's like, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, get your stuff together. Yeah, you know, yeah. they told me to go to my doctor. So basically what they did was set up a plan. They didn't want to admit me to anything. They thought, you know, this guy is at least coherent. He came to us. He doesn't seem like he's going to hurt himself. Mm-hmm. So I went to my local doctor. I mean, two questions, maybe. How are you doing? You saying you feel a little depressed? Yes. I'll put you on this, put you on this, go get these prescriptions filled. I did that and my dad made some calls and there was a therapist that I met with that day. So I get the prescriptions filled. I take the first two pills. I go to the therapist. He reads what I was prescribed and instantly he's like, I don't think you should be on these. Oh God. So what did they prescribe you in the beginning? And then what did the therapist say? Okay, don't take that and take this instead. Prozac. In the beginning was Prozac? Yeah. Prozac and Depico, which Depico is like a antipsychotic. Okay. And they basically was just like, yeah, you have bipolar. And then I go to my therapist. He's like, yeah, bipolar is really, really hard to diagnose. He's like, it takes years. And he was actually saying that was the most misdiagnosed mental illness for a while and it was it was really good setup i mean he was through a church whether you go to church or not i mean that's that's on other people but what i thought was really cool was this church decided that mental illness was a a problem and they would take these therapists that would work one day a week and they would do a session for 30 bucks as opposed to like having to go through insurance and spend a hundred hundreds and some dollars so here's this great therapist that i get to meet and work with for $30 every time. And if you couldn't afford it, they really just preferred you to come in and try to pay it later. Nice. So you could be anti-church, but I'm pro anybody trying to help people with mental issues. So, I mean, right away, he's like, I don't want to put you on medicine. I want to focus on hydration. Mm-hmm. I want to focus on sleep. I want to focus on exercise. And I, I want to focus on on your diet and journaling, but mainly every, you know, like he would basically say those are things that we need to focus on, but they already prescribed me this stuff. And he was like, well, let's try it. And you're going to journal. And where it got interesting was, so I started this process and me and my wife basically were just on a break. I didn't think at this point would stay married at all, but I'd write these journals and I'd email them to her. And that was just to have somebody that I knew that could check on the journals here and there. They didn't have to read every single one, but just kind of check here and there. That way, if I started talking crazy talk, that maybe they could get some more help for me. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And then it made me feel good because even though we're on a break and she moved to a different city at this point, but it felt like, well, she still cared. Maybe there's a chance, but also 
at this time in my life, I just have to try to fix whatever is broken in me. And so right away, it was like, couldn't drink on the Depico. I guess there's a lot of complications if you do, but it was, I don't know. I, I felt really good probably within the first week. And this is both Prozac and Depico. Yeah. Okay. And so I, I was going to my gigs on the weekend and I wasn't drinking and you know, I was running every day. At this point, I think I I left the bank at some point. So now I was working a lot less so I could focus on, you know, sleep, hydration, all that stuff. Yeah. And probably for the first like two weeks to a month, I felt like almost like Superman. And that's I didn't know that was a bad thing. So in my mind, it was like, oh, well, this is just how I felt when I was like when I felt normal in high school. But I had like friends asking me constantly, what are you on? Because I want some of that. Wow. And I felt I, I did feel like pretty amazing. I felt like Superman. And you shouldn't feel that good. I don't think I was journaling and I was talking with my therapist. And at some point, my wife was like, you know, I want you to move to this town with me and really kind of give it a go because i mean she's seeing oh this person's happy it made me pretty quiet so i wasn't as talkative that probably helped yeah. <laughs> less annoying <laughs> like man he's not annoying anymore he just sits there and stares at the wall yeah. so then i moved there but then anytime we had an argument that's where it just got worse and worse i could get upset and there would just be these crying spells and I'm not a crier. So I'm in this argument. Now I'm crying. And now I can't stop crying. Like these intense cries. And then I go to like stop. And I'd be like thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm better. I'm, I'm not going to stop crying. And then all of a sudden it would just happen again. And my therapist said that that happens a lot with soldiers when they return from war. And it happens a lot with police officers after like maybe a shooting or something. Where they get in these crying spells and it's almost like waves coming on you. The wave hits you and crashes on the shore. You're you're crying, and then it starts coming back, and you start thinking, oh, I'm going to feel better, and then boom, another wave hits. And these would just drain me because, I mean, this would be hours of crying, and it would get to the point where it was just like I'd go into another room and just kind of sit there until it all stopped. And then my thoughts were getting weirder. So it started out where I felt, you know, like I said, good and pretty happy, and then it got to the point where just a lot of these thoughts were happening in my head suicidal thoughts i'd be like on a porch thinking i should just run into the road wow like i don't know who thinks that but then what happened was i was even though i moved out of town i'd still come back to play gigs and then i had like a shot one time while i was on this medicine and i can't describe it other than like once i had like a shot it was like i know i'm not supposed to be drinking on this but my therapist, I asked him about it, like, hey, there's some side effects if you drink. He's like, yeah, some people have them, some people don't. Oh. <laughs> you know, he's like, but if you're going to have, like, a beer, like, you know, you're grilling out with your family and you want to have a beer, have a beer. No big deal. You're around your wife. You're around your family. If something goes wrong, they'll know. And yeah. just to have a conversation with her that, hey, I'd like to have a beer. And if something goes wrong, at least she would know why something was going wrong. And plus, she was a nurse, so that kind of made him feel, I think, better about it. But, like, I had a shot at a gig one time, and I can't explain it other than, like, it might as well have been, like, crystal meth or something. Because I had a shot, and, like, within seconds, all I could think was, I need another one of those. And then I'd have another one. And I, I've always 
been able to you know drink a couple beers or have a couple shots but i might have a couple shots and then i'm tired of having shots but this was like no 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 i need another one all the, and then after that one oh i need another one and just like losing my mind drunk i mean 10 shots 15 shots i mean it just didn't matter and again every shot that you're drinking it's putting you at risk but then like whatever the consequences of drinking and being depressed and also being on this medication for the next few days would take their toll. So it sounds like it's made you very impulsive and just unable to make sound decisions, especially when it comes to drinking or doing drugs. Yeah. And it was almost like my brain was, you know, after a few weeks of feeling like super clear and feeling like, oh my God, I have everything figured out and life's not that bad. But then all of a sudden, like, the medicine like scrambled my brains and like i said i was drinking and it didn't matter like i said i mean maybe sometimes i had 10 shots maybe sometimes i had more and just coming from somebody that's not that much of an avid drinker anyways i'd go months sometimes without having a drink so then it became like when i was at a gig like please don't drink because if i just have one i know what's going to happen and i was living an hour and a half away two hours away from most of my gigs so not only was i drinking and driving i was drinking and driving hours you know away and i got pulled over a ton by cops but when you're not drinking because you see what happens is you're on the road at three o'clock four o'clock in the morning yeah you're the only thing on the road so eventually you get pulled over yeah well you're coming home from the gig if you're not drinking the cop looks at you you got all this musical gear all you're just driving home okay be safe well once you start drinking then they start pulling you over and giving you tests and all that stuff. And and I was running. So, you know, on top of being drunk, I have the like the world's most sore legs oh, God. ever. So anytime I got pulled out of the, a cop car, then they would think like, man, this guy must be on something because his legs aren't even functioning. <laughs> You're all be sore. Like, I'm like, oh, I, I, you know. But before I actually started drinking, I actually got pulled over multiple times. And just, I don't know if it was because the way the medicine was making my eyes look or what, but I got cuffed multiple times and put in the back of cop cars. They just were like, hey, are you on something? Are you drinking? And I'd say, well, you know, I'm on antidepressant medicine and I'm on Depico, which is antipsychotic. And then it's like two seconds later, they're cuffing me and putting me back in the back of a cop car. And that was defeating too, because you're trying to get your life together. You reached out for help doesn't seem like your family doctor gave a shit about you this therapist is even telling you i don't even know if you should be on this stuff yeah and now this cop is arresting you and has the right to because you just told him that you were diagnosed with bipolar Mm -hmm. they like have the right to just arrest you and to be like well he doesn't seem mentally stable so they can arrest you yeah when a cop says have you been drinking tonight if you say oh i just had one you just admitted that you have been drinking and driving and that gives them probable cause. And so right. even if you're telling them about medicine or medication, you're pretty much giving them probable cause. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I had this officer who was really rude to me. I did all the little tests, but he kept spitting like chewing tobacco by my feet. And I just felt really crappy about it. So anyways, I come back and visit my father, and which was a cop. And he just said, hey, you know, next time they pull you over, you know, you can refuse their test. What he meant was you can refuse, you know, like if your legs hurt from running, you can refuse their test. You can refuse to follow the flashlight 
right? You don't have to say your ABCs backwards if you don't want to, right? That's what he meant by refusing their test. Yeah. And then just telling them, hey, I will blow and then you can let me go, right? Yeah. So I get pulled over the next week, probably by the same police officer, but it was like the exact same spot. And I, at this point, I didn't have any drinks on medicine. Pulls me out of the car. He wants me to walk on a line. And I just say, look, I'm, I'm running like six miles a day. I'm on this medicine. My legs hurt. I'm just refusing your test. And that's all I had to say. And then it was like, oh, you're refusing our test. Oh, you're in the back of our cop car. Then I'm in the back of the cop car. And I'm like, yeah, so am I going to get the breathalyzer? They're like, no, you refused all of our tests. And so now they sent me to jail. I'm in a not a nice area of my state. They put me in a cell. It's standing room only. I am the only person in the cell that looks like me. And I actually get surrounded and talk shit to for like five, six hours. They just would circle around me, calling me names, waiting for me to do something. So you know, they could fight me. So they call my father. He comes to pick me up and he pays the bail or whatever to get me out. And the first thing he says is, why did you refuse their test? <laughs> I was like, cause you told me to oh, like, well, I, I meant just all the tests, but the breathalyzer. And I said, I asked about the breathalyzer and they said, no, I go to the hearing like the next day or two days later, or whatever it was, and explain to the judge what happened, what my father told me, why I... Because if you refuse a test, you're instantly losing your license. You're instantly uh, getting a DUI. So anyways, that was like the first experience, but... And I like missed, like I was buying a house with my wife, and the day that I was arrested was the day of our house inspection. So I missed that. So she's just like, oh my God, this guy's a complete loser. I mean, I couldn't get my crap together, but I'm on all this medicine, man. I, I couldn't tell you like how messed up my mind was. And then it makes you paranoid and you're already in a relationship that's not that healthy. Yeah. But now you're paranoid. So you're like, you know, anytime she look at her phone, oh, geez. you know, I'm just like, who's she talking to? And then you feel so bad about yourself that you have zero confidence. So then you can't even act like you should for her to even be interested in you. And so basically I woke up and I would drive my kids to school. And, and at this point I, you know, I went from teaching guitar lessons, making 30 to 40 bucks an hour playing cover band gigs, making 30 to 40 bucks an hour to working in this warehouse in Richmond, Indiana for like seven fifty an hour. And it was like, whatever the temperature was outside, it was the winter. It's like what the temperature was inside. Of course. <laughs> and I, you know, I made seven fifty an hour and then I got yelled at every day because I would like make a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it was just awful. So I, then I go pick my kids up from school and then I come back home and I make them dinner and I get them in bed and all that stuff. And I was so focused every day of just trying to make it the best day I could because that's how low I sank. I went from working three jobs, having money in the bank to having no money to I couldn't get it together. You know, yeah. all I could do is drive my kids to school. And that was like an accomplishment. And then getting to work on time was an accomplishment. And then picking them up from school was an accomplishment. And hopefully I don't start crying at some point today. Yeah. It was just awful. I felt awful. And the and then everybody's treating me awful because it just, I, I seem like this guy that had all my stuff together that was just throwing it all away. 
Yeah, you, they think you're a screw up now. Yeah, right. And I, I, I still remember my oldest stepson saying, "They don't. Nobody treats you that good." Oh, and I was just like, "Yeah." I mean, and and the fact of the matter was, a lot of people weren't treating me that good. But I was also so down on myself that I couldn't even see that to speak up. Mm-hmm. You know, and then what are you going to do? Like, my wife would like go out to a bar on a Friday, and stay out way too late. Maybe once or twice, that's fine. But at some point, you should be able to go to your wife and say, "Hey, that's I'm not comfortable with that." Yeah. But when you don't, you can't do that because if you start an argument, you're just going to lose your mind and be crying all the time. You know what I mean? And you don't even feel like you're good enough. Obviously, she's staying out to avoid coming home. And then you feel like the biggest POS because she's doing that. And then it's not even, you're not even worth coming home to. So why are you going to even bring it up? And so I had this random gig uh, around Kent State University and it was just some of my buddies were playing, but they needed a fill-in bass player, mm-hmm. and I needed the extra money because I was working for like seven fifty an hour. Yeah, and they were offering oh two hundred bucks to go play. Well, it was like a four-hour drive. Oh jeez. So I I drive, and at this point, I wasn't drinking at gigs anymore. But the guy that was running the gig, he was like, "Hey, let's just do a shot to start." I was like, yeah, I can't really drink tonight. He's like, yeah, one shot won't hurt you. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah well, so I do the shot, and instantly it's like I need more shots. Yeah, And I couldn't tell you how many I did. Probably well over 12 shots, mm-hmm. maybe more. So you're you're pulling some uh, what's wrong with Aunt Diane right now, just hammering it yeah. down. <laughs> and then I end up leaving the gig. I don't say like bye to anybody. I pack up my stuff start driving i mean who in the right mind takes all that sh- that many shots you know this alcohol is also reacting to your medication mm-hmm. so now you're just basically like off in never never land and i decided to start driving and i don't i don't remember i don't remember leaving the road but when i came to it was a, a flashlight banging on my door or banging on my window mm-hmm. and i was a police officer and so then I'm in this car a lot. <laughs> I don't even know how I got there. And he's like trying to pull me out of the car. And then all of a sudden, I, I'm next thing you know, I'm wrestling him. Then I'm wrestling the other officer. Because you're out of your mind at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And But the sad thing was I wasn't even like being mean about it. I was like, you know, I'm 6'3", mm-hmm. 200 and some pounds. And you guys sent two officers that are 5'7". Yeah. And for whatever reason, I'm deciding that we should wrestle. And it was weird because as I was doing it, I was embarrassed for myself, if that makes any sense. Like, I can see myself doing it. And so that happens. And then my wife, the next day, she has to come up, get me out of jail. You know, they they charge me. They give me the rights to drive or whatever. But I'm going to have a hearing later. Go to pick up my car. I got busted tires flat tires like i i don't even know how i got there and so anyways they we drive all the way back change the tire drive all the way back four hours like i think maybe her mom had to drive up there with her oh, to drop her off so she could drive my car mm-hmm. and then the mom had to drive so you're talking about eight hours and it's on a sunday and there's kids at home and just ridiculous and somebody that's never been in trouble with the law never been arrested now i've been arrested multiple times yeah 
And so we get back, and at this point, like the, it's not a marriage. I'm just staying at the house, mm-hmm. and she's staying there too. I mean, it was nice that she picked me up. But again, the whole time, why she's driving home, she's texting here and there, and I'm just like thinking, who, the, who is she texting? Yeah. You know, instead of going, you should just be lucky she came and picked you up. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it was like, oh, my God. But then it was also like, I'm, I'm a loser. I'm being a loser. Why would you want to stay with me? You know? Yeah. And and so we get back, and at some point we get through, I mean, the worst Christmas of my life. And just, I mean, I basically, like I said, I, then I even broke it down even simpler where it was, I just wake up, take the boys to school, go to work, I come back home, I pick, or I pick the boys up, I make dinner, and then I would sit in a room for a few hours, and then I go to bed. Yeah. And that's just what I was trying to do every day. And the next thing you know, I got my court hearing to go up at Kent State. I go up there. I'm the last person that they call. I'm so sick of this. I mean, I, I probably cried the whole way up there, but it wasn't like the typical, these crying spells that I was having out of nowhere. This was like, I can't take this anymore. Like, I mean, I, I've not liked my life before. I've not liked myself before. I've had stress before, but I've never had this before. And I, tried to get help and i tried to get on medicine and this can't be working something is wrong here and i'm the last one to get called up and she's asking me about wrestling with the officers and all this stuff and i'm just like you know tears are coming down my face and she's like why are you crying i'm like because i'm completely you know disappointed in myself and i'm raising these kids and and this is what they think being an adult is and look if you're in front of a judge for doing something bad and you know you did something bad you should be crying yeah you should be apologetic there's nobody else that was apologetic in that court and then i was crying and then all of a sudden they stopped me mid-sentence and she went back to her chambers and she never came out they had the sheriff come and arrest me what and said i was not mentally mentally capable of standing trial so now I don't even know what's going on. Yeah. I have gigs that I need to play that weekend to pay my bills. And you're sending me to jail. And right when I get to jail, the guy says, do you want to eat? I goes, what are you talking? I don't even know why I'm here. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to eat? I go, no. And they go, hunger strike. Oh, my God. They pull me into a cell and take off all my clothes and throw this like powder stuff on me and put a turtle suit on me which I don't know if you know what a turtle suit is. I have no idea. What is it? It looks like a turtle suit. It looks like a ninja turtle suit, <laughs> but it's pads and you have no underwear on. You have nothing. You just you're just in this turtle suit. Okay. And so I was in a cell that had no toilet, it had a crate, well, not a crate, like a I don't know, like a, it was like a hole in the floor and so now I'm like, okay, they just stripped me naked and now I'm in this turtle suit. And I don't even know why I'm here other than I was crying in the courtroom. So I'm like, where do I use the restroom? They're like in that hole. And I'm like, I'm not doing this like that. Like, first of all, I'm not an animal, yeah. you know, but I don't even know why I'm here. So then at some point they're like, you, you can call, call home. Well, I just got a new cell phone. Oh, jeez. So what I didn't know at the time was I ended up making like 10 calls while I'm there. They were all going to my my cell phone. I thought I was calling my wife's cell phone. Her her number's one number off of mine. But I was calling myself the whole time. 
so that wasn't happening. So anyways, I'm there for like uh, a couple of hours and they say, okay, here's what's going to go on. They're going to send a doctor to come and evaluate you. And if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go and you're going to get time served and you're not going to have to do like three days in jail or like a sobriety, you know, class or anything like that. And I was like, okay, that's not bad. Well, they send a psychiatrist. He comes in, he starts questioning me. He's staring at this police officer girl over and over not even paying attention to me at some point i just go hey man can we take this serious like i can help you get her number later oh god and then like he fails me so then like another day goes by i'm still on suicide watch and (laughs) i mean i'm like what happened they're like you didn't pass the test (laughs) i'm like i didn't pass the mental test to get to get out of here then the judge finds out And now she's like furious because she doesn't want to just keep me in jail, but she's like on vacation or wherever she's gone. So now she's like calling other doctors to have them come in, but it takes days for them to get a guy that can come in the whole time. I'm in a turtle suit, refusing to use the restroom. Then every time they like give you food, like you're going to eat. And then like, if you didn't eat enough food, they'd come by and tell you like, if you don't eat more food, they're going to keep you in that turtle suit. But you're like, but I'm not hungry. They're like, it doesn't matter if you're hungry. You need to eat it, you know? And you're like, okay, I'll eat it. And then I had this guy come in and, and he evaluated me and it was fine. And he said, he's fine. He's good to go. And here's the nutty thing though. Yeah. You, you tell me I'm on suicide watch. You know, I'm on medication, but you're not giving me medication. Now we're four days into me being in a cell without medication. Yeah. How do you expect me to pass anything? So he passes me. Then they lost my clothes. I was in there for like another six hours while they're trying to find my clothes. Finally, I get the clothes and I have to go back to the courthouse. Now, here's what they do at the courthouse. So they cuff you and cuff your feet and then cuff you with other people and put you in a van and then took me down and I had to see the judge. And then the judge gave me like permission. Here's what's nuts. She gave me permission to drive home. I mean, all this nonsense because she was like, okay, I'm sorry. I was only going to let you be in there for a day to calm down and I was going to give you time served. And that was my mistake, blah, blah, blah. Well, how am I going to get home? Because I'm four hours away. She's like, okay, I'm going to give you this piece of paper so you can. So I'm leaving the courthouse, driving, scared to death. I'm going to get pulled over and put back in jail. And I go to my ATM and get my last 20 bucks out basically to fill up my tank to try to get back home. Then, like, I looked up all this stuff. Like, she's notorious. When she came to my trial, she just came from a mental health awareness, mm-hmm. like, seminar thing. And she's just notorious for anybody that has mental illness that she can just lock you up. And, yes, I was crying. But everybody should be crying. Mm-hmm. If you drove drunk, that you put your life at risk and you put everybody else's life at risk, you should cry about that. Yeah, I mean, they always want you to show remorse. And so here you are showing great remorse, yet now it's used against you. So what are you supposed to do? I don't know. Yeah, I was just tired of it. So I get back, my poor wife, you know, she's probably like, what the hell is going on? And they didn't know where I was at for four days. Oh, like, jeez. Because you couldn't well, call. Think, yeah. <laughs> well, I could call, but I was calling my own number. The whole time I was on medicine, like, whatever could go wrong was going to go wrong. Yeah. We eventually separated. I moved like a, I don't know, like a mile and a half away. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a part of the boys' lives. I wanted to be a part of these kids that I raised lives. And like the first 
thing that they had that I was going to go to. Uh, she just kind of blew up and yelled at me and called me all these names. And, and it wasn't my issue. It was like, oh, we're going to go to this band concert or whatever. She's like, okay, well, I'll pick you up. And I was like, well, I'll just drive separate. Like, if we're going to get divorced, I can just drive separate. I don't want it to get into this weirdness thing again where now we're riding together all the time. But we're going to get a divorce. And when I was like, well, I'll just drive myself. She's like, oh, you're so difficult. And just yelling at me, blah, blah, blah. And after that, I had no contact. I would text her. She wouldn't answer. I would call. She wouldn't answer. And the boys at that point, you know, I met them when they were three and five. They were 10 and 12 at that point, yeah. maybe a little older. And I would like Facebook message my mother-in-law and she'd basically be like, well, if my daughter doesn't want you to see the kids, then you're not going to see them. At this time, I get out of the warehouse. I start working at a bank in town, making a little bit, bit more money. I'm living, like I said, a mile and a half away. I'm not seeing these kids that I drove to school every day and picked up from school every day. But the bank that I worked on was the street that their grandma lived on. So if I could time it right, I could go outside and see them pass. And they would like wave to me. Oh. And that was basically about it. I don't know. I was probably there for about a year or so. And no contact with these kids and my bank closed and everything, but it was just, but every day, I mean, I sat there every day. I wrote her email every day saying that I wanted to see these kids. And every day, I, I mean, there was not a day that I didn't think about hanging myself every day. And I always tell these people the story that my mom, my mom came up to buy me groceries and she was just trying to, you know, be a mom and help out. And she wanted to buy me bleach to, to clean my apartment and I was so adamant about her not buying me bleach yeah. because I just knew I'd chug the whole thing like she would clean my apartment and she'd go home and I would chug this bleach and then forever she would, she was the know. one that bought it yeah so anyways I'd call my brother and I'd call my dad and my dad kept saying you know you gotta make this choice which I just thought was complete nonsense I wasn't something inside me it was a little messed up and then i try to get on this medicine and all the stuff they'd always say it's a choice depression is a choice no well and i never believed him at all so i i didn't have knives in the house so i couldn't cut myself i didn't have bleach in the house so i couldn't drink it and so all i had was like a belt and so i would every day i would think about what was it called like a not like a pillared but like a up in the ceiling like a kind of like a rafter yeah and every day I would see it and it would just slip my mind. Like, even if I was having a good day, it would just be like, well, that's where I'd hang myself. If I, Jeez. if I need to hang myself, that's where I'm going to hang myself. And I'm still taking my pills every day. I'm journaling every day. At this point, I'm now like running. I'm doing CrossFit because I have no friends in this town. The only people I know are my family in law. They don't want to talk to me. These kids don't want to talk to me. Or maybe they did want to talk to me, but yeah. I wasn't allowed to see them. And so then my, my brother and my friend came to pick me up and called my doctor when I moved back to my hometown. Same doctor that prescribed me all that medicine. He said, well, to get this medicine refilled, you need to come see us. You have to come into the office and talk to somebody for five seconds. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> And pay $100. <laughs> yeah. So I'm set up with my insurance through my, my wife and we're getting a divorce, but in the divorce the only thing I really asked for was to keep me on the insurance for a year so I could try going to try to fix myself. Yeah. So I go to the, my doctor that told me that I was bipolar, doesn't ask me anything other than like, how's things going? I'm like, they can't get any worse. 
He fills the prescription. Then I go back home. My mom's like, what do you got to do today? I'm like, I got to get my medicine. I mean, at this point, I'm an invalid. At this point, I I went from a guy that could take care of my parents to my parents are taking care of me again. I'm in my 30s. And when your mom's asking, what do you got to do today? And all you, you only have one thing that you have to do, but you don't even know if you can do it. And so I was like, well, I got to get this prescription paid. So I'm driving, get my prescription filled. And I get a call from the doctor's office saying that I'm no longer on my wife's insurance. And it's like a 300 and some dollar bill. And I have no money. So then I go, well, how much is this prescription? And they're like, well, we don't know. Well, before it was like 10 bucks or whatever. So then I go back through and like the Depico was going to be like 120 some dollars or whatever it was going to be. I'm like, okay, I got this doctor bill for 300 some dollars and I got hundreds of dollars that I got to spend for the medicine. That's not working. Yeah, That's making my life awful. Mm-hmm. And I drove back home and my mom's like, did you get your medicine? And I said, I'm never taking those again, ever. And I've not taken medicine since. I've never thought about hanging myself since. It's very strange. When my dad said it's a choice, it is on some level. And I don't want to minimize anybody's depression because, one, your depression is going to be different than, you know, my depression. Yeah. And if you are bipolar, your bipolar is going to be different than if I was bipolar. And different drugs will work for you and different drugs will work for me. But what can help everybody is hydration, getting the right amount of sleep, focusing on your diet, focusing on exercise, journaling, making sure that if it gets too dark that you have support that you can reach out to and talk to. Yeah. But that takes making a decision and making a choice. What I think you're trying to say is it's it's not like you wake up and just decide, I'm no longer going to feel depressed. It's, I'm going to wake up and decide to start making changes. Right. I'm going to do everything in my power. And medicine didn't work for me. And I know friends that medicine hasn't worked for. And I know a lot of people that medicine has worked for. There's a speech that Adam Carolla gave. And I know uh, I've talked about Adam Carolla a couple times on my podcast. Yeah. And I've actually got like a lot of hate mail. You know, he's a misogynist. Misogynist or not, he said one time, hey, look, you're depressed. Give me five push-ups. Okay, maybe those five push-ups are harder for you than somebody that's not depressed, but give me five push-ups. And then the next day, give me five more and go for a walk, go for a run. Yes, is it going to be hard for you? Yes, I've had it myself. Get up and, and do something. And just that simple concept really changed my life and in a way possibly saved my life. So like when people go, he's a misogynist, I'm like, well, maybe he is, but he helped save my life, yeah. you know? Right, well, right. it still saves some people's lives. Something worked for you. And who are we to say that's the wrong messenger to get the message from? Yeah, and, and I, I still tell people to this day, any, any of my friends that say I'm, I'm depressed and I'm thinking about getting on medicine, I've just had so many situations. One of my best friends got on anti-depression medicine and weeks later you know, was starting a car in a closed garage. They don't work for everybody and the side effects and sometimes it makes it worse for people. For In my case, it made everything worse. I mean, they should have never diagnosed me with bipolar. I never had a manic episode in my life. Yeah. Now, some people say, well, that's bipolar too. Bipolar two is when you haven't had a manic episode. I think some of the stuff we just don't know. Like, And also, why do we identify 
this way. I do not want to identify as all. I'm the captain that suffers from severe depression. No, no, I'm just me. And this is just kind of part of me. And I know I have the natural tendency to be depressed. I mean, look at you now. I mean, you you run like a top 10 in the world true crime podcast. So you're doing pretty good. But you still deal with depression. Oh, yeah. You know, I bought a new car and it did nothing for me to the point where I was like screaming at people. I should feel something. I should feel like a sense of accomplishment. My dad was asking me like, how do you like your car? I go, I should like it more than I do. But we all deal with stuff, and it's also taking the time out to say, hey, am I getting enough sleep? Am I drinking enough water? Am I exercising? What does my diet look like? And start there, because I think most people don't, and then they go, hey, well, I took this pill. There's a lot of of these supplemental pills that you can take or supplemental vitamins, packages that you can take from like companies like Onnit, where you can go and do online surveys, and they'll talk about some of this stuff, and there could be like, a deficiency in like vitamin B and that deficiency in vitamin B. If you take a little bit of vitamin B all of a sudden, Oh look, you're not depressed anymore. Yeah. And these are things that people aren't talking about because they want the pharmaceutical company wants you on something. Yeah. I think our diet is the most amazing and helpful thing. If you're eating garbage food, you're going to feel like garbage. Yes. And it's just like drinking. Part of our show is drinking beer and I always tell people, if you send beer, Nick gets it. Yeah. I don't take it because now, like we hung out at CrimeCon. I drink at Mm CrimeCon, but I might not drink for a week or I might not drink for two weeks. But that's me constantly checking in with myself. Where am I at right now? And also try to keep everything in perspective, have gratitude. And I'm constantly saying to myself, things could be worse. Yes, they could be better, but they could be worse. My sister teaches in a district where kids show up without underwear and without socks. I was so lucky to have the parents I had, be in the city I had, to the education I had, to have the friends I had, to make all the bad decisions that I made. I was so lucky to be in those situations. I remember you you made a joke when we were doing our... uh... Charles Whitman and, and he lived at home with his parents at the pool and you're like, he had a pool. And I did get the reference. It's like, yeah, not every kid has a pool. You know, they're doing better than most. They're not showing up to school without underwear or socks on. And it's it's obvious that we're doing much better than most. Yeah. And I think sometimes when I say that to my friends, they're like, Yeah, dude, yeah, I understand. People have it worse than me. But right now this feels bad. Because here's what happened. When I got on medicine, it became about what I could do for myself to make myself better. And what I started realizing was like, wake up and go, what can you do for somebody else? And that will make it better. That'll make you better. You'll see your own value. To me, it's not that I just struggle with severe depression. I I struggle with severe self-hatred. I struggle with just constantly judging myself, judging my effort. When I say it, it sounds so bad. It sounds like I wake up and just, oh, I hate myself again. Well, it's not that. It's you. You're completely demotivated to attack the world like you normally would. Right. And sometimes it's that weeks at a time. So, and trust me, there's been plenty of times where I'm having a hard time getting out of the funk and, and I think maybe I should be on, and maybe there would be a pill out there that would help me a little bit, you know, kind of boost me up a little bit. But I've had such bad... The two and a half years I was on pills or however long it was were the worst 
years of my life, period. And what's really sad is that a doctor could just say, oh, yeah, sounds like you're bipolar. Take this, take this. Well, how did our system get to this? We're popping these things like they're candy. This is an antipsychotic that could have got me shot. Yeah. You know, l- lucky that I'm a white man in America wrestling cops. Because if I was a black man in America, I would have been shot. And you know that. The, the outcome could have been much, much different. And when you went into the court system, let's say you weren't shot, would you have gotten the same sentencing? Would you have gotten the same treatment? Mm, maybe not. But yeah, I mean, I think it's try to have some gratitude yeah. towards what you have and your opportunities. And also just, I think if you can try to make somebody else's day better every day, that's going to make your life better in a whole. So yeah. talking about making other people's lives better, how did you get the name, the captain? The, well, that <laughs> the thing was, is I was like dealing with coming off medication. I mean, my life was bad, man. I got I got like a severance package from a bank, so I didn't really have to work at the time. And I was playing some gigs and I just moved back home and I just went through this whole two year ordeal of just the worst thing in my life. And I remember telling my parents, like, I just need time to figure out what I want to do with my life. So I'd sit in the in the garage and just read stuff and watch motivational speaking videos. And, and at the same time, me and Nick started the podcast. But when we started, I borrowed an Elton John record from Nick, and there was a track called Captain Fantastic, mm-hmm. I believe. And so when we're like going to do the first recording, I said, well, I don't want to use my real name because I think I'm going to go back to teaching kids. And I didn't want them looking like, oh, don't you have a podcast? Oh, it's about murder? <laughs> yeah, we don't want our kid to come here anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I was just like, oh, would call me something. And the funny thing was one of our friends, we used to call the captain, but now we, we call him a different name. And so I was like, oh, well, I could be like the captain. And then I was like, oh, I'll be like Captain Fantastic. <laughs> After a couple of beers, I was like, I'll be Captain Fantastico, which I was, I think, for a couple of episodes. And then eventually I was like, we have to drop this Fantastico. <laughs> I came up with that when I was drunk and we shouldn't. <laughs> so... Somehow I became that's I became the captain. Yeah, it's a much better ring than Captain Fantastico. <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing was my buddy was really mad that people were calling me the captain now and not him. But the funny thing was I I used to play in this band called the Nathan Witt Band. It was kind of like Bruce Hornsby meets Dave Matthews type music, and my hands are very large and wide. He played piano. I called him Mittens. And he'd call me Fat Hands. Yeah. And so for a while, he was calling me Captain Fat Hands. I wish I would have just remembered that at the time that we started the show because I would have been like, hey, it's Captain Fat Hands. Yeah, <laughs> I think so the captain's we, better. <laughs> yeah, we shorten it to, to, to Captain. When I talk about making people's lives better, I mean, my number one goal when we started the podcast was like Generation Y, Adam Carolla, Joe Rogan. All these shows, they helped me so much when I was driving to and from gigs, two, three-hour trips. They made my life so much better. Yeah. Except for Generation Y when you guys talked about the Kennedy assassination and I drove for an hour screaming. <laughs> both of you. Just said, Aaron, you don't know what you're talking about. There's no way they could have made those shots in time. <laughs> but yeah. I think we forget. We just do a show and look, I mean... Every podcaster I've talked to 
is like it's a lot of work and it is yeah yeah but there's thousands and thousands of people that you're making their life better every day because instead of sitting in traffic they were sitting in the garage listening to nick and the captain or they're sitting mm-hmm. with uh justin and aaron listening to generation y and they become friends with you like in their head yeah and i just think every every time that i get my head gets a little bit big i i remember that i try to remember that the mm-hmm. fact that there is somebody that is maybe having a really shitty day and is driving and all of a sudden they're smiling because i said something stupid on the podcast <laughs> you know? so or somebody you say hi you know how are you doing tonight aaron and somebody starts smiling yeah and it's happening all over the world so i think that's the reason why I do it and why I'll continue to do it as long as Nick allows me to until he fires me. Like that was one one joke too far. But no, <laughs> I just think that's like the greatest thing like that I could talk into a mic. Like th- even this show, there's going to be somebody that's listening to this show mm-hmm. that it made their day better. Mm-hmm. And there's probably five other people that are like, I wish I never listened to that show. And there's going to be five people that are struggling with medications or struggling with something in their life and they're going to relate to you yeah and my, and what i tell people the medicine thing i was obviously i'm not a doctor but in my gut for a long time something in my brain was telling me i needed to stop taking medicine and if i would have heard a story about somebody doing that and, and knowing that their life got better i might have tried that sooner but i do believe like it's so strange because i've always liked my dad but i started hating him when he'd say it's a choice depression is a choice yeah but now getting on to the other side it's like i see what he meant by that that things are hard but we can choose to sometimes when i get in a funk then i i watch a sad movie and when i get in a funk i listen to only sad songs <laughs> and then i only talk about sad things well sometimes you have to say i'm in a funk i can't watch that today i need to watch this comedy or nope can't listen to that song today that's too depressing it's little just choices like that and i think that goes a long way that's why i think what he means by it's a choice yeah and i think he's we can choose to appreciate what we have we can choose to enjoy our friends and family but depression it just demotivates you and it makes it hard to do those things like you i just my car just died not too long ago i had to buy a new one I felt nothing when I bought it. I don't have highs and lows. I don't. I felt nothing. I felt nothing. I just, it makes me so happy that you felt nothing. I know. Like, oh, yes, you felt nothing too. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Like, I have buddies that buy cars and they smile about it for like a year. I'm like, what is that like? Yeah. There's very few things that make me smile. <laughs> it's just. <laughs> But yeah, it's I don't have highs and lows, so I guess I'm balanced. And some people are just not balanced, so they need medication. They're chemically imbalanced, and this is what's going to get them back on track. So, well, you yeah. should have some highs and lows, though. Yeah. Uh, we might we <laughs> might need to get you to talk to a therapist. Or something. I I do I need to I've dabbled with talking to therapists every now and then but i get in my own damn way i think i know more than everyone else (laughs) well that's the thing though too is like i was so nervous about talking about this stuff before and now i think it's so important yeah and what you're doing is so important and i really truly believe that talk therapy is the best thing that you can do i should have done that before any medicine was even presented and if you find somebody that 
cares because my therapist was great and the fact that he didn't he didn't want to dive into everything in your childhood is more practical hey are you drinking enough water what a concept to think about but i really do think talk therapy is is great to the point where i mean i might take a break for a while and what i mean by a while maybe a couple months but I mean, I'm looking forward to getting back to talking to the therapist. And most of the stuff in my life is going pretty good right now. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I don't have some issues that I could be talking through. So I recommend it to you. And, and then maybe at CrimeCon, you'll be nicer to people. <laughs> You're nice to everybody. I try. I try. Thank you for sharing, Captain. Uh, We had a few outtakes that did not make it to the final cut. I'll be putting our conversation out on Patreon if anyone is interested. I wanted to finish up with a couple things. First off, today is my birthday, which is another reminder that we're all born into this rat race where we're trying to finish at death's finish line. Sometimes we forget to enjoy life a little bit. And I think that to really enjoy life, it requires some interaction with other people, learning from others and appreciating others. With that said, I have a little bit of an apology to make to one of my listeners named Rachel. Uh, She had written in and I was a little short and snippy with her because I was just having that kind of day. But we ended up having a nice conversation. She happens to work in forensic psychiatry, and she listened to the captain's interview. She's not from America, so her first uh, comment was was how difficult and frustrating the American healthcare system can be, which <laughs> she wanted to make a distinction that Depakote is... Not exactly a antipsychotic, but more of a mood stabilizer. She feels he had a very severe depressive episode, and it doesn't sound like he had bipolar. However, it does sound like he probably had bipolar tendencies. And my own thoughts on this are, I've watched my sister struggle with mental illness her entire life, and every time she sees a different psychiatrist, they give her a different diagnosis. And it's really sad because... I would hope there'd be a little bit more consensus and standardization when diagnosing someone. She feels that the Prozac induced what's called a mixed addictive state, which is a combination of mania and depression. Uh, People can be depressed, but simultaneously more energetic, uh, more impulsive, and make very poor decisions. The mood stabilizer Depakote could have sorted this out if he had been uh, prescribed the correct dose. She says the main thing that went wrong with the captain is that his medications were prescribed without any ongoing follow-up or monitoring, which is, I think, pretty common. If he had just been prescribed the correct balance of treatment and follow-up, it probably could have managed his depression much better, along with his uh, healthy lifestyle and good mindset. She worries about relapse, and he might not respond to psychosocial interventions such as therapy. Medications definitely can be life-saving if prescribed correctly and individualized to the patient. She thinks it's essential that the captain and others 
sort out their health insurance and psychiatric coverage. If it happens again, people need access to a psychiatrist, not just a family doctor. So when it comes to prescription meds, we, we need to have follow-up. The professionals need to take care when handing out any kind of prescription med. And it's discouraging to see a situation like the captain's where he needed help and the system somewhat failed him around every corner and caused him such unnecessary trauma and issues in his life. So thank you everyone for listening.